Well, good morning again. Have you ever lost anything? No, <laughs> not talking about your mind. Uh, it was earlier this summer, um, I have a motorcycle, and so gas prices are ridiculous. So it's like, I'm going to ride this thing as much as I can. So I took it down to Miami, was doing some stops down there, and I had to get gas. So I get out my wallet, uh, pay for the gas, and then I head back to Columbus. And I don't go a straight way. I like take dirt roads and windy roads. And then I get back to Columbus, and it's like, you know what? I'm thirsty. I want something to drink. So I get off my bike and I start walking into the gas station and I reach for my wallet and I realize it is nowhere to be found. And it's like, oh no. So I like frantically look around the motorcycle and I can't find it. I look on my bag and it's not in there anywhere. And it's like, oh, this is terrible. So I retrace my entire steps all the way back to the gas station, get to the gas station, nowhere to be found. And so I'm looking and I go ask the attendant, hey, has anybody turned in a wallet? And they're like, no, nobody has. And it's like, oh, I'm going to have to replace my credit cards. I'm going to have to get a new driver's license. Like all of this stuff is going to have to happen. And so then I get on my motorcycle and it's like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to find it. Start riding home and I'm just riding and I just kind of glance off to the side and I see this thing in the road that doesn't look like it belongs. And it's like, maybe. And so I turn around, go back, look on the side of the road. And there's my motorcycle, oh, not my motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, crazy twist. Uh, there's my wallet. And uh, I mean, I tell you, it was just like one of those moments where it's like, it's a wallet. Everything's replaceable. I can cancel all my cards. Nothing crazy is going to happen. But I jumped up and down. And for the next five miles, I was just like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Jesus. You have saved me so much heartache and so much annoyances. And it was like, man, I couldn't find it, and then I found it, and I was thrilled. And that's for a wallet. I mean, not, I mean, it's a big thing. It has a lot of important documents in it, but it's like, it's a wallet. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is something that's much more important than a wallet. Because if you remember, or were here last week or tuned in, we're starting this new series on living on mission. And so last week, we looked at what that mission is based out of Matthew chapter 28, where in verse 18, Jesus opens up and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so he opens it up with that. This is why you are about to have to do what follows that. And then he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus is telling us that we are called to live on this mission. And he says right there what this mission is, to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And so he says, go. So we saw what the mission was last week. But what we're going to see this week is why we're called to do this. Like, really, why should I go? Why should I do all of this? And it's because we're going to see the heart of the mission. Because last week we ended kind of with this, the saying. And it, the, the saying went like this. The heart of the gospel is bringing lost people to Jesus. 
That's how we came to Jesus, through the gospel. The gospel, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just like what Paul told us in our communion meditation, where we love because God first loved us. And so we are called to respond to the gospel. The gospel is the heart of the mission. So at the heart of the gospel is bringing lost people to Jesus. And the heart of the gospel is what should be the heart of the church. That's what we're called to be, to go and teach, to go and preach, to go and proclaim who Jesus is. As Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2.19, or 2.9, he says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light, and therefore we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has done that. And so today we're looking at the heart of this. Why should this be our mission? And it's because of the heart that is behind it. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus is going to be telling us three parables in which explain and show the heart of God, which should be our heart. So if you'll join me, we're going to open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our passage. So, Father God, we just come before you this morning. And God, thank you. As that song just said that, oh my goodness, you care so much about us, that you took the cross, that you mended broken hearts, that you went through it all with us on your mind. God, thank you for that. And so as we have uh, received the grace that you have given now, may we just have a heart like yours. And as we're about to see, God, reveal that heart to us and then transform ours to be more like yours. We love you. And it's in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so Jesus, he's about to tell us three different parables that really have one overarching theme, and that is the heart of God. We are going to see what God's heart is for and who God came to find. Because in order to kind of understand why Jesus segues into this, we need to see kind of the context. And so Luke, he opens up the context for us right away. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, notice a couple things right here, right away. You have this kind of divided into two groups. You have kind of, if you're on a religious scale, the worst Like you have tax collectors, it doesn't get much worse than them. And then you have sinners. You you have from obeying the word of God and living for God, you have the bottom of the barrel. And then you have the Pharisees who are like the religious elite. But notice this also, that here you have the Messiah of the world in front of them. Jesus, God in flesh, standing in their presence. And notice what it says about the two groups. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus. Where the religious elites, what did they do? It says they grumbled about them. They were like, can you believe this? He is eating with them. Not only is Jesus associating with them, he's eating with them. 
You know, it's one thing for like Jesus. He had huge crowds following around him. And it's like one thing for Jesus to be walking on his way and them coming up and being like, hey, Jesus, can we talk to you real quick? And Jesus is like, you know what? I got three minutes. Go. Tell me your sob story. Let's hear it. Like, yeah, okay, cool. All right. See ya. Catch you in the next town. But that's not what Jesus is doing. It says that Jesus is intentionally taking time out of his day to sit down, recline with them, and eat with them. That's like a severe intentionality there, where he is specifically sitting down and eating. I mean, just think about the emphasis that is put on eating. Think about whenever uh, you first met your significant other or your first date. What did you do? More than likely, food was involved. Because activities allow you to do things, but like when you sit down and you eat, that's when conversation happens. That's when you're face to face and you are able to really get to know them. There's an intentionality about it. You're setting aside time to be in their presence. What do we do every single week that we gather here? We sit at the Lord's table where God has invited us to commune with him, to fellowship with him through the sacrifice of Jesus. It is a sitting down and having this intentional meal with God. Sometimes, honestly, it seems like we just have a cracker and a juice and we miss the total implications of it and the the total importance of it. That's for another sermon. So what we get to do, though, is we get to be invited to eat with God, to fellowship with him. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is seeing these people that are outcasts in society. They're like the prostitutes. They're the cheaters. They're the tax collectors. They're the, the, the ones that everybody hates. And Jesus says, you know what? Let's eat together. Zacchaeus is a great example. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree. Something about he could see. Jesus, he could see. If you went to Sunday school, you know the song. But... Here, Jesus is walking by, he sees Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, for today I'm coming to your house, and I'm going to eat with you. And everybody's like, what? You're doing what? Do you know who he is? So to understand this, we get the context of what's going on. Jesus is intentionally finding those that everybody else hates, and he says, I came for you. Mark actually says that. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And so Jesus is eating with them. And so they're upset, they're grumbling about this. They're like, can you believe what he does? And so then Jesus, he makes a point to share the parable. He says, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And I've been thinking about this parable this week. Because it would be like, okay, so if I had uh, 99 sheep, or I, if I had 100 and one got lost, the business plan would be protect the 99. Stay with the 99. 
Make sure they don't get hurt. One, I'm sorry, I'm going to count my cost. It's gone. But what Jesus is saying is no. He goes and seeks them out. He goes, leaves the 99, which is like seemingly reckless to just leave them to go find this one. But yet that's what Jesus does. He says he goes to find the one. And then he finds him. He puts him on his shoulders and he carries him back. And then when he gets back, he says, let's party. I'm going to call my neighbors. I'm going to call my friends. We are going to rejoice. Now, if you ever mark in your Bibles, I would encourage you to highlight verse 7 and underline these words. Because it's like, okay, you know, there's celebration. Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven. This is the heart of God. Lost people coming to find salvation in Jesus. That's what God's heart longs for. That is the mission of God's people. That is what we have been entrusted with, to go and find lost people, bring them to repentance, to find salvation in Jesus. You know, this is great what we're doing here. Like Jesus commands it, do not forsake the gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing. He, he loves it when his people come together. But to think that this is the Christian life is I'm going to go and I'm going to sit there and call that my good deed for the week and I'll give one hour is to miss the mark of what God is calling us to do. He says his heart is to go and find the lost sheep, to bring them back to Jesus. And he says that is where there's rejoicing in heaven. There is joy over this. Like I think God is pleased when his people gather together. But notice he says there will be more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who returns to God than over 99 righteous people who have no need for repentance. I mean, it'd be like saying gathering together here and being like, you know what? Uh, I'm comfortable with my social distancing right now. We don't, we don't need to bring more people into the flock. This is good. And it's like, God is like, no. There are broken people. There are lost people. And what's going to bring more joy in heaven than just like 130 people gathered together is when we go out with the mission of God and bring these people in. Where they can say, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Jesus says it right there. If you want to argue, read verse 7. Where Jesus says right there, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We get to see the heart of God right there. That he desires for lost and broken people to come to him. And so then Jesus goes on and he gives us another parable. And he, he kind of, it's, the, it's similar with a little difference to it. He says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It kind of sounds like the same parable almost. But I noticed a little difference here. It's like the first one we get to see the heart where God says there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner coming and finding repentance. 
In this one, we kind of get to see the extent that that is carried out. This woman loses a coin, which probably was important. I read some things that it was like one of 10 coins that they would wear that would signify that they're married. And so it's like if you lost your wedding ring, kind of, and it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to look for that. Where this woman loses this one coin, but notice it says she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, and she seeks diligently to find that coin. In my mind, when I look at this, I see her flipping over chairs, flipping over couches, moving rugs, like turning house inside out to find that coin. That's the extent that God goes to find us. I mean, when you look at, okay, how far was God willing to go to bring a lost sinner to him? How far was he willing to go? Pretty stinking far. Like to the extent that somebody can go, he gave his only son. Jesus gave his life for us. What's the extent that we go to carry out this mission? What's the extent that God goes to fulfill the mission for us? What's the extent that he went? Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 32, says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will also graciously give us all things. To what extent did God go? He gave his son. So what extent can we be like, you know what, I'm going to draw the line right here. I'm not going to go that far. How far are we going to go to fulfill the mission of God? And God says, you turn the house inside out. When you have the heart of the mission, when you see, all right, it is about finding lost people and pointing them to Jesus. How far are you willing to go? Are you willing to diligently seek them out to find them and turn them back to God? We can't save them, but we point them to the one who can. And Jesus shares with us the extent. And notice, in both of these situations, it's not really the circumstance that Jesus cares about. Because you can make the argument, I, I do it a lot, where it's like, okay, that first sheep, he was just dumb, which sheep are. It's like, you know what? He was in a pasture. He had the good life. He was protected. And he done jumped over the fence and ran away. What an idiot. You know what he needs to do? turn around, find his way back. That's what good, smart people do. But he's a sheep. He's dumb. And yet, Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to go find him. It doesn't matter the reason that he's lost. He's lost. He's going to perish. That's the thing that matters. Jesus doesn't care how the coin got lost. He cares that the coin is lost. And he diligently seeks it out. And in both times, Jesus says, there is joy in heaven. You know what? There used to be a saying in that time. There used to be this saying, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner obliterated by God. Do you ever find that kind of welling up in your heart towards people? Kind of like, man, you know what? They, they're getting what they deserve. And you know what? They could perish and that's fine. That's the heart of the Pharisees at that time. Jesus, why are you with tax collectors and sinners? God should smite them right there. And it's like, true. And he should take me out with them. And yet, Jesus says there is more joy when they repent. When they turn back to God and find salvation in Jesus. 
And so if the shepherd cares about the sheep that much, if the woman cares about a coin that much, if I care about my wallet that much, how much more should we care about eternal souls that are perishing? How much more should we have this heart for lost people who will cease to exist on this life and then face eternity in hell unless we fulfill the mission? God can call them. He, he can work miraculously. He did it in Paul. He can just poof, uh, reveal himself to them. And then they give their life to Jesus. But he has entrusted you and me, his body, to carry out the mission. There's a psalm, I think it is, that says that if we are silent, the rocks will cry out. But that's not how it should be. We should not be letting the rocks do what we were created to do, what we have signed up to do, to live on this mission. So we get to see the heart of God. We get to see the extent in which God carries out this. And then lastly, we get to see the message through this mission. And it's a message of pure reconciliation, which means going from being completely like separated and away from God and being made right with God to be reconciled, to be brought back in. So in verse 11, he says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So again, Jesus, he's like making it apparent the condition of the man here. Like in the first two, it's like, okay, we don't really know how they got lost. In this one, it's like no doubt in our mind, this guy was completely defiant. Notice it said in verse 13, it said he, he took his possessions, he took a journey into a far country, and he squandered it all with reckless living. It was like he, he just gave way to all caution. He was like, you know what? I'm going to spend it on this. I'm going to spend it on that. I'm going to live this lifestyle. I'm going to party it up. I'm going to, like, there's the way that my father taught me to live, and I'm going to say, forget you, Dad. I am going to live how I want to live. So much so that really he's taking what he was supposed to get when his dad passed away. So he's pretty much saying to his dad, Dad, will you just die so that I can have my stuff? I would rather have what you're leaving me than you. Pretty severe thing to say. And yet, again, this is the typical place where you would want to be like, well, he got himself in that situation. He can get himself out of it. And that's kind of his mindset in it even. In verse 17, he goes on. When he came to himself, he finally realized, oh my goodness, rock bottom. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
He thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to my dad, and I, maybe I can at least work for him. I'm not going to be able to be his son. I, I already blew that. But maybe he'll hire me. Maybe I can work my way back. Isn't that the view, when I say religion, I mean like modern-day religion, when you hear it in a negative connotation of, you know what, I've messed up. So, so uh, not to pick on them, but when you go to confession, it's like, all right, you confess now, go and say 10 Hail Marys and give this much and you'll be forgiven. It's like, if you do this, then forgiveness will come. And he's thinking, if I go back and I say to my father, dad, can I just work for you? Maybe someday your love will build back up for me. I mean, that's what he's thinking here is I will work my way back. But again, we see that's not even close to the heart of God. We're in verse 20. It says he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I love that part. Here he is, he's walking back, and I mean, head down, droopy, probably ribs showing. He has, like, blown it all. And he's walking back, and he's like, okay, I got, I got this. Dad, I, you know, I failed you. I sinned against you. Um, don't even let me be your son. Just, will you hire me? Can I at least work for you? And then head down, but his dad is looking for him. And his dad sees him, and his dad, which goes against everything older men do in that day, unless they're in war, his dad sprints straight for him, runs to him. So his head, the, the son's head is down. And then next thing he knows, he is just being embraced. He's being hugged. He's being kissed. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. Like, this is how it plays out in my head. He's like, wait, 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 dad, no, no. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned before heaven. Uh, you know what? I don't deserve to be called your son. Treat me. And then his dad's like, oh, stop. I don't want to hear it. Go get the fattened calf. Go get my best robe. Go get my ring. Go get shoes. Let's throw a party because my son has come home. Notice the dad's not like, yeah, you were pretty dumb. Like, I mean, sometimes I want to respond that way. Like, what were you thinking? But that's not how the dad was. The dad's not like, hey, did you bring me anything back? Did you come back with, I, you know what? Work for me 10 years and then maybe we'll be okay. His dad doesn't even care about that stuff. His dad runs full speed to him, embraces him, kisses him. And then he says to his servants in verse 22, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. We are partying tonight, people, Christian parties. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And I don't think it was just some little meal. I think it was like, man, my son has come home. Like that is the message that we get to go with. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, he says, We implore you on behalf of God as ambassadors for Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we're called to do, to go with the heart of the mission. Really honestly being like, I don't care what it costs me, I'm going to fulfill what God calls me to do. And the message that we take is this, that when they're like, you know what, I wanna come to God, but I, I just don't know that my life is in the right spot. Man, you're ready. 
Like when you think that you've hit rock bottom, that's when Jesus is going to like come and do a work in you. Everything else is like, you know what? I think I'll work a little bit more. I think I'll work a little bit harder and then I'll come to him. And it's like, hold on. That is not the heart here. That sheep was completely lost. That coin was completely lost. That son was lost. And he was the only one that was like, you know what? I'll try and make amends. And the father didn't even allow him. He said, you are my son. I'm going to give you a position. I'm going to give you the best robes. I'm going to give you my ring. I'm going to put shoes on your feet. I'm going to bathe you. I'm going to make you new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You know what? This, this reunion that we get to see between the father and the son is a complete unhindered reunion like the father had no animosity there was no no begrudgment no condemnation there was just complete arms welcome in and that is exactly how god receives us that is exactly the heart of god when we repent which just means turning back to god because notice in each one of these jesus emphasizes repentance he says there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents. He says that there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And then here he says that the son repented. So repentance is needed. That son was not going to be able to be in relation with his father if he kept on squandering everything and living all the way over here away from his father. But it was when he repented. And I, I feel like you could break these down and like find kind of loopholes in them. Like, okay, well, the father stood back and just watched and waited. So that's what we should do. Just wait. Like, they'll come find us. But yet the first two tell us otherwise. The first two tell us to go and find the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then we are told that, man, God runs full speed for us. We get to see how God cares for us because God embraces us. And then he says, you are my son. Ephesians tells us you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins. You were just dumbly following the course of this world. You were by nature children of wrath. And then verse five says, but no, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the story. And then when we come to Christ, Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17 tells us how God feels about us. He says, the Lord, your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with, by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We see that in the father in the parable where he was like, get the fattened calf. Get my robe, my ring, my shoes. Bring them and let's celebrate people. We're told in Galatians 4, 4 through 7 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might have adoption as sons. And because we are sons, because we have been that prodigal son that God receives back into his family, 
it says that God has put his spirit of his son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You're not working as a hired hand. You are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And again, I want to point out in each of these three parables, we get to see this. Verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 9 through 10, she found it. She calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he said in verse 23 and 24, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's like each time Jesus is emphasizing this is how important it is. That there is joy in heaven over these things. So here's the thing. We're going to close with this. We see the heart of God in this parable. Is that our heart? Is that your heart? Is that my heart? Is that the heart of this body that gathers here? Do we rejoice over one sinner coming to find repentance and salvation in Jesus? Or are we just like, you know what, we're good. Let's, let's not rock the boat too much. We've got our routine. We've got our thing that we're doing. I got my salvation. It's good enough for me. Do we have the heart of God? Or, because Jesus closed the parable of the prodigal son out with another brother that shows a lot of uh, religious, negative connotation, religion, religious people's hearts. He says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. I can't believe that. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Okay, whatever. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not even my brother, I've disowned him. This son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Do we have that heart instead? Where it's like, really? You, no. No, don't, don't join us. Like, if you grace this us with your presence, that's one thing. But we're not going to seek you out. We're not going to go and actually carry out the mission. You, you come find us. And really, I'm going to be resentful about it even. Like, honestly, we have to check our hearts on that stuff. It is something that, like, of course, everybody wants to be like, no, never. But when you truly check your heart, which heart do we have? Do we have the heart of God or do we have the heart of the other brother? You see, God has told us this is what brings me more joy in heaven. Seeking the lost. Are we living lives that bring God joy and that ultimate joy? Like again, man, God delights 
in you. God has set a standard for us to live our lives, and I believe it pleases God when we live for him. But we can't just sit back and think, I'm doing the religious thing. I got it all covered. Everybody else, they can find their own way. Because Jesus said there is joy, more joy in heaven when one lost sinner finds their way. If that's the heart of God, shouldn't that be the heart of us? If that's the mission of God, shouldn't that be the mission of us? Because Jesus told us what the mission is. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he says, when you do this, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Father God, again, I thank you. First off, God, that you come running after us. God, that we would not be able to even have this message if it was not that you first loved us and you sought us out and you found us. And God, you gave us salvation through Jesus. But God, I pray that your word work in our hearts, that we, we have the heart of the Father that wants to see lost people come and find you. God, help us fight the heart of the older brother who has resentment and anger. And God, may we have your heart. So God, I pray that you just fill us with your spirit, that you come and fill our hearts with your love so that we can go and love those who need it. God, it's a work that only you can do. So may we just surrender it over to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.